This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Rear Vision on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. Global financial markets have been in free fall as fears reverberate around the world about the spread of the coronavirus. The All Ordinaries Index has lost $165 billion in value today, closing 9.5% lower at 5058 The Australian share market has plunged a massive 10%, the biggest one-day percentage fall since the 1987 share market crash. A massive plunge halted trading on the New York Stock Exchange overnight after the S&P 500 dropped 7% at the opening. The market was spooked by the rapid spread of the coronavirus. Well, Australian shares are now officially in a bear market. That means they're down over 20% from their recent highs. Policymakers are scrambling to find a circuit breaker and rekindle confidence. The spread of the coronavirus has led to stock markets around the world plummeting to levels we haven't seen since the global financial crisis in 2008. No one knows yet just what the economic consequences will be of the crash and the virus, but the recession word is being used by some economists. 91 years ago, there was another stock market crash that led to the Great Depression. Is there anything we can learn from that experience? In today's program, we revisit the story of the 1920s and the events that led to the stock market crash of 1929. American can, 181.78, New York Central. It was 1929, the year of the Golden Glow, of the boom, of the bull market when a nation with a rainbow around its cocky shoulder stumbled onto what appeared to be the permanent plateau of prosperity. The capital was still in Washington, but the nation's pulse was to be felt where two swollen arteries named Broad and Wall Streets met. In 1919-1920, New York became the financial capital of the world. You know, London was that before 1914. New York became the world financial capital. So Americans were quite optimistic going into the 1920s. Robert Silla, Professor of Economics and Financial History at the Stern School of Business, New York University. There was a bit of a post-war recession in 1920-21, but then there was a very nice recovery, and as the decade went on, Americans got more and more optimistic. There were a lot of new technologies. The Radio Corporation of America, which made radios, was the hot technology stock of the 1920s, and it it soared like dot-com stocks did in the 1990s. The automobile makers, you know, General Motors was doing very well. Airplanes were coming in, too, so the, the modern commercial aircraft industry got its start in the 1920s. Uh, A lot of electrical uh, utilities and and people who made electrical appliances, these were all kind of new technologies in the 1920s, and they captivated the investors of the 1920s, just like dot-coms and uh, computers and uh, the internet and information technologies did in more recent times. Roaring Twenties, sometimes called, a period of great optimism in the United States. And it was interesting, you said that the the centre of the financial world really shifted from London to New York, and was or to America, and was that very much the same for the stock market? Did the New York stock market through, in the post-World War I period, become really the, the most important stock market in the world? 
I think it probably did. Americans invested a lot in war bonds during World War I. Then after the war, this got many Americans used to investing in financial securities. And after the war, the government paid off some of the debt, which put money in people's pockets. And then Wall Street uh, rallied to the occasion by inviting Americans to invest more in uh, stocks and, and private bonds. And so a great many people began to play the stock market in the 1920s, people who hadn't done it. Before World War I, the stock market was kind of you know, the playground of the rich. In the 1920s, Wall Street became the playground of ordinary middle-class Americans. There, the stock market reflected a nation's fever. Everyone played the market. The financial page was read by more people than the sports page. Your barber and your cab driver talked about the kill their cousin had made in copper. And everybody talked about margin. Peter Spencer is Professor of Finance at the University of York in England. What was interesting about the 1920s was that share ownership migrated out from the very rich to ordinary people. And in just the same way as ordinary citizens in China are now punting on the stock market, so we saw a lot of that kind of spread of wealth and spread of stock market interest to ordinary people in the US during the 1920s. Roughly speaking, the stock market doubled in value between 1925, 26, and 1929, which meant that it was rising at something like 20% a year. And 1928 was a very good year, and then 1929 was a very good year up until stocks peaked at the beginning of September in 1929. And the Dow Jones average, you know, which started out at, uh, I forget, but below 100 back in the late 19th century, was almost 400 at the peak in early September of 1929. The best thing to say is that in the three or four years before the peak in 1929, the stock market more than doubled. Harold Beerman, Emeritus Professor of Management at Cornell University. Well, you have to understand as you look at the market going up, the U.S. economy was going full blast in real terms. The automobile industry uh, had developed into a major industry, the steel industry. Electricity was spreading throughout the country. Railroads were expanding, obviously, things like coal, steel. So while the stock market literally doubled from, let's say, 27 to 1929, the fact is that if you looked at any of the appropriate measures of economic vitality, as late as October of 1929, all the signals were good. There was no inherent reason why the market crashed in 1929. If you looked at automobile production, productivity, all the signs were positive. So that when the newspapers in the summer of 1929, magazines spoke about the economic environment, they were very bullish measures. People still disagree on that. I think what happened in 19, the late 1920s is that corporate earnings were at a kind of all-time high in relation to GDP. We've seen it other times, but the late 20s were one of those times when earnings were unusually high. But some people say, based on fundamentals, that you know those stocks at 20 times earnings weren't so overpriced. And it is true that American business was doing very well. On the other hand, I think as an economist that the over-optimism led to over 
overinvestment, so anyone might see that corporate America would have to be lucky to continue selling its goods at the same levels of the late 20s going forward, and so maybe they overinvested. And then there are some definite signs of speculative orgy in the 1928-29 period. Some closed-end mutual funds, you know, just packages of stocks that were based on stocks already richly priced, and then Goldman Sachs, let's say, would package them into a Goldman Sachs fund, and then the fund would go to a premium over the richly priced stocks that were in it. That's what some people cite as evidence of a bit of a speculative orgy. Congress, the Federal Reserve, the President of the United States were very bearish on the stock market. They blamed the New York speculators for inflating uh, stock market prices, And as proof, they looked at the growth rate in prices rather than looking at the relationship of the stock market prices and the real profits of the corporation. Surveys of corporate profits, dividends, and so forth in 1929 all beat 1928 by a significant measure right up until the third quarter. And... If I were a stock buyer or seller in 1929, in September, I would have uh, bought stocks. Everything looked good, and then the market crashed, and there's an important lesson there. You can have a stock market crash without a general overriding reason for the crash. You're listening to Rear Vision with me, Annabelle Quince. In today's program, we're taking a look at the 1920s and the events that led to the stock market crash of 1929. One of the features of the stock market during the 1920s was the growth of margin lending. Few of the millions of people who were playing the market owned their stocks outright. Most of it was on margin, and to do this, More than $6 billion had been borrowed from banks and brokers who would be forced to call if panic seized the market. Margin. Must have more margin. Still, there were no takers as values continued to fall. Then, at about 1.15, a hypodermic of adrenaline was given to the frightened patient. Richard Whitney, representing four of the big banking houses, walked onto the exchange floor and put in a bid for steel. Its price at the moment was 193. We'll buy steel at 205. 25,000 shares. The effect of the stimulant was immediate. A miracle seemed to have taken place. There were buyers for all stocks in the market rally. The case of national jitters quickly subsided. Nothing to worry about. Just a freak run. Now about those new debentures. Uh... In the 1920s, the the big new thing that happened is all kinds of middle-class people came into the stock market, and they found that they didn't just have to rely on their own savings to invest in stocks, that the brokers and the banks were willing to lend them money. And so a lot of the stock market boom was financed on margin buying, where people borrowed money. And of course, that's a way of getting leverage. You know, if you put down $100 and uh, borrow $100 or or more, if the stock goes up, you know, you kind of magnify your percentage profits because you only have to pay back your loan and you get to keep the rise in the equity value of the money you borrowed. Back in 1929, it was thought that brokers were lending money too freely. And the interesting thing there is 
It was the broker's money, and guess what? The brokers were very careful about who they made the loans to, with the result that no brokers went bankrupt after the 29 crash. The margin buying was not excessive. It was there, but it wasn't excessive. And yet in 1929, 30, 31, the crash was attributed to the margin buyers. Uh, there were a lot of half-truths. It was thought that there were people manipulating the market. Well, even back then when there weren't the SEC rules, it was very hard to manipulate the market. The Reserve Bank responded to the great flurry in speculation by putting up interest rates in August of 1929. And I'm just wondering, did that have an impact at all on on what led up to the crash? Um, I think it had a negative impact. You have to remember that even earlier in the year, the some people at the Federal Reserve Bank were thinking stocks were overvalued by the end of 1928 and early 1929, and they wanted to push interest rates up. But then other people came in and said, well, you know, that wasn't really the right thing to do. I think Citibank, a private bank, said, don't worry about it. Uh, we're going to lend you money to buy stocks. But by August of 1929, you know, the stocks were moving up to this previous all-time peak. Then the Federal Reserve did raise interest rates, and the peak was 380-something on the Dow Jones average. And by October 24th, it was down to 300. So the Federal Reserve's raising of interest rates at the end of August, beginning of September 1929, actually led to a fairly substantial decline from 380 down to 300 by October 24th. And that's just before the crash itself began. At 10 o'clock on the morning of October 24th, the traditional bell sounded across the exchange, and another day of trading got underway. General Electric, 315. General Electric, 310. But by General 11 o'clock, it was apparent that this was no ordinary day. This was to be Black Thursday. And for a number of well-known stocks, no buyers could be found at any price. A constricting ripple of fear spread over the startled floor and to every corner of the nation. We in financial history view the crash proper as a period of about three weeks from October 24th, 1929 until about November 11th or 12th, 1929. That's when the Dow Jones average fell from roughly 300 down to slightly under 200. So it lost 33% of its value in that three-week period. The worst days were October 28th and 29th, Black Monday and Black Tuesday. Stocks lost about somewhat over 20% of their value. So two-thirds of the crash proper happened on those two days at the end of October. Still, there were no takers as values continued to fall. October 29th, the bottom fell out of the market. No buyers were to be found for anything. American can, 120. It had been at 181. It fell to 86. AT&T, 205. It eventually went to 197. Had been 304. In that one fateful day, 16 million shares had changed hands. In a day which saw the ticker tapes running hours behind. In a day which left the mighty national shrine a bedlam of horror. Its vast floor strewn with 10 inches of paper. Its machinery buckling under the strain its operators exhausted in the growing pandemonium, and its customers, for the most part, cleaned out. It is true that over the next few years, the stock market went vastly lower, 
But what people sometimes forget is that from November 11th or 12th, 1929, until sometime in April 1930, the stock market recovered most of the ground, almost all the ground it lost in the crash proper. That is, it rose from slightly under 200 all the way back up to around 300 again from November 29 to April 1930. It was episodic. We saw interest rates going up and the stock market moved down 10, 15%. And it seemed to settle there for a couple of weeks. And then it broke down again, moving down by another similar amount. And that kind of pattern of sharp falls followed by what appeared to be a stabilization, that continued well into the summer of that year. And eventually, the fact that interest rates were not cut meant that those downward lurches continued. For a lot of people, whether it's true or not, there's a clear connection between the 1929 crash and the depression that followed. And I suppose that's the sort of the chronic fear now that any crash in the stock market could lead to a much broader and wider depression. Yes, and, and no, I'm that's absolutely and, true. And, and is, there, is, there, is that fear justified, do you think? Well, the, the market had crashed in December of 29, it was still down, but not as far down as it, in September. And the economic variables were not that bad, weren't as good as the summer of 29, but weren't that bad. So you had a situation where if the Fed had allowed the banks access to more money, ability to lend, lowered interest rates, that sort of thing, it might have avoided the uh, depression. Certainly, Friedman and Schwartz, in their classic study of 1929, identified the tightening of money by the Fed in the winter of 29 as being a major factor leading to the depression. So I think it was a combination of the stock market crash and a ill-conceived policy on the part of the Federal Reserve that led to the the real depression, the real downturn in incomes of corporations and so on. Before the 1930, the economic outputs of corporations indicated prosperity. After the winter of uh, 2930, there was less optimism. Things looked, uh, started to look uh, dark, and they got darker and darker from 30 to 31, 32. The arteries of commerce were clogged with 5,000 bank failures. 45,000 miles of railroads fell into bankruptcy. Big business that didn't fail retrenched and contracted. 12 million unemployed. 1931 brought the bread lines and the soup kitchens and the apple cellars and more unemployment. 15 million now. This, indeed, was total depression. One of the things that happened after the crash in 1929 was that there was real problems in the banking industry. And I suppose when people look at the problems that happened then and the problems that are happening now in terms of the various banks to do with the subprime market, people could, are there comparisons there as well? 
Well, there's a superficial similarity. American banking was quite different back in the 1920s. We had tens of thousands of banks, and many of them just having one office and making loans to local communities. Now we've had a lot of consolidation in our banking system. I mean, here, here's a rough statistic. There were three times as many independent banks in the United States in 1929 as there are today. So we've consolidated our banking system a lot. When our banking system was not so consolidated back in the 1920s, it was much more vulnerable to um, banking panics because the banks were less diversified, just having one office and lending to a small community. So what happened then in 1930 to 33 is all kinds of these banks failed. And, and the reason was the depression itself. The bottom fell out of the economy and what might have been good loans at higher prices when prices went down a lot. Borrowers couldn't repay their loans, therefore the banks couldn't repay the depositors, and we did not have deposit insurance then. We, we got many of our current banking protections as a result of the debacle of 1930-33. Now, in the current period, it seems to me that our banking is much safer. We do have deposit insurance. The Federal Reserve seems to do a much better job of managing its monetary policy today than it did in the 1930s. Uh, you know, people from Milton Friedman, many other noted economists, kind of blame the Federal Reserve for getting us into the Great Depression. The Federal Reserve seems much more astute today. Nonetheless, the housing bubble led the banks into overlending, and now the banks are losing money. They're not failing. You know, there are not many of them are closing their doors, but they've certainly taken their lumps in terms of banking profits for some of the same reasons. They made unwise loans, just as they did back in the 1920s. The thing is that from, let's say, the end of World War II, 1945 to 1970, the memories of the 29 crash and the 30 depression were with us. And in the U.S., there was not extensive investment in the United States, but by the end of 1970, and then certainly from the 80s and 90s, if you weren't invested in the market in some fashion, you saw immense wealth being built up by people who were invested, and it was impossible to stay out of the market. Most everybody started to invest in the New York stock market, which means investing in common stock. As I say, a lot of it is via a pension plan. When I started to work as a professor, the first decision I had was which organization I went with, and there was a pension fund called TIA-CREF, which was initially started by one of the foundations, I've forgotten which one, but then your decision was what percentage of your investment you put in stocks and what percentage you put into non-stocks which at that time were both bonds and real estate. Most of us went 50-50, which in hindsight was stupid because a 100% investment in stock was going to be significantly better, but that's with the aid of hindsight. But with the 29-30 background, 50-50 seemed to me to be aggressive, and that's where I went. Now, uh, most of my colleagues who are, say, 50 years old, will invest uh, just about 100% in the stock market. Good, but not good enough. That's how investors have reacted to unprecedented moves to stem the global financial turmoil and stave off recession. Traders didn't seem to know how to react. 
The Dow Jones went from 200 points down to 200 points up, and the wild swings continued all session. The markets dropped 15% in just six days. The central bank tried to alleviate some of the fear before the markets opened. The Fed cut a key US rate by half of one percentage point, and other major central banks did the same. It's an unprecedented show of strength. I'm not critical about those efforts, but I think it was John Maynard Keynes that, or one of his buddies that said you can't push on a string. Uh, you can lower interest rates, but what you want are uh, corporations to invest and consumers to buy, and that doesn't necessarily happen just because you lowered interest rates. The market will be somewhat encouraged by the lower interest rates. House mortgages will come down in terms of cost. Those are all good things in today's market. Whether to achieve the objective or not, uh, I don't know. But in addition, Congress is about to pass $150, $160 billion package to stimulate the economy. That'll do something. But whether it'll work or not, we don't know. Uh, I'm optimistic that one way or another we'll avoid a full-blown depression recession and after 12 months the real estate market will come back. After all, the, uh, the ability to produce a whole lot of industries weren't touched by the subprime mortgage mess and I'm optimistic that uh, we'll fight our way out of it. But could bad things happen? Yes. Should you live your life based on bad things happening? No. So in, in essence, I suppose what you're saying, that we have learned quite a lot since 19, 1929, that in essence, when the first major stock market bubble in modern times occurred, which was in the 1920s, we really had no idea how to deal with it, did we? That's precisely it. That's precisely it. And and since then, you think that the the levers that the Federal Reserve now have in terms of the, the use of interest rates and what we've learnt about interest rates really is enough to ensure that we won't slide into that kind of severe recession, depression again? Yes, I, I think that is right. I, I wouldn't think that we're in for the kind of decade-long depression that, that we saw then and were ultimately only lifted out of by, by the war. You say that as though you sound as though you've got your fingers crossed. Um, well, as, as I said earlier, you know, you have to reach for a um, pretty large piece of, of wood when, when you're saying something like that. But no, I'm as confident as an economist can be of that. Well, I think it's important to stress the fact we don't really understand the crash of 29. I would say that most people, and I'll include academics in the mix, do not understand why the stock market crashed in 1929. The important lesson is, yes, a drastic crash can occur without a seemingly good general reason. It can just be a narrow segment of the market. And today we have the subprime mortgage mess, which is a narrow segment of the market. Is it enough to trigger an overall decline? Already has. Is it going to trigger more of one? Uh, the person that knows that is going to get awfully rich. And no one knows what impact this new virus is likely to have long term on both the stock market or the economy more generally. 
So like 1929, we are in new territory. On today's program, you heard from Harold Beerman, Emeritus Professor of Management at Cornell University. Robert Silver, Professor of Economics and Financial History at New York University Stern School of Business. And Peter Spencer, Professor of Economics and Finance at the University of York in England. And archival material today came from the documentary I Can Hear It Now, 1919 to 1949, and was narrated by Ed Murrow. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.